So this is the second to the last message that we're doing in the series on the health and the mission of the church. Next week we'll be on a praying church, and then we'll be moving into some Christmas messages. But last week we talked about the topic of church discipline, uh, one that a lot of times doesn't get talked about, but we recognize it's something we need to talk about, and that there was a time I mentioned that uh, many considered church discipline to be one of the three marks of a true church. And that if you called yourself a church but you didn't practice this, you weren't genuinely a church. The other two marks that people considered were faithful preaching of the word in God and also faithful administration of uh, the ordinances, or some call them the, the sacraments. And so as we do this series on a, on a healthy church, uh, this is what we're talking about this morning uh, the ordinances. And we're going to see they're called ordinances because uh, they were ordained for us or ordered for us by Jesus Christ. He told the church, the local church, to do these things. And so these are not optional things that we do. We're told to do these as a local church by Jesus Christ. To give you a summary statement for this message, healthy churches practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that Jesus gave for the local church to practice in order to visually symbolize spiritual truths. So we believe there are, there are two of these ordinances. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as things developed during the Middle Ages, uh, finally came to what they hold as the number of seven sacraments. And so uh, according to the Roman Catholics, there's uh, baptism, confirmation, uh, the uh, Holy Eucharist, which is another word for communion, uh, penance, and they also consider ordination to be a sacrament, matrimony to be a sacrament. We consider matrimony to be something sacred, something very uh, uh, holy unto the Lord, but we don't consider it a, a sacrament. And they have extreme unction or last rites that you have before somebody dies. But Protestants, with the Protestant Reformation, uh, looking at Scripture, only saw two of these as actually commanded in Scripture. And so to qualify for this, uh, they limited it to baptism and to the Lord's Supper, uh, which is also sometimes called communion in Scripture. And they had some criteria for this. Uh, they had to be commanded by Christ and commanded by Christ in a way that was addressed uh, to the whole church, not just to individuals. So things that the church does uh, as the church, uh, not something individual um, Christians do. And also uh, they looked at what was actually practiced by the early church as an ordinance. Uh, some churches will call them uh, ordinances. We tend to. There are some churches that call them uh, sacraments. And uh, to me it depends what do you mean if you use the word sacrament. Because in Roman Catholic theology... Uh, not only was it uh, called sacraments, but the way of salvation was sometimes described as sacramentalism, that grace or even salvation came through the sacraments, and that by t partaking of the sacraments, that's how God, uh, almost like uh, grace is some kind of like liquid in heaven, and he's pumping it to you automatically through the sacraments as you partake of these uh, to save you or at least keep you in a state of, in a state of grace and that they would work um, their phrases ex opera operato, which literally means through the working of the works, that it, it just it would happen automatically if you just took these, 
uh, these sacraments. And so instead, we believe that salvation is through faith alone, that the way that anybody comes into a saving relationship with Christ is, is not by taking the sacraments, not by being baptized in water, it's not by uh, taking the Lord's Supper. So when we do this, we want to be really clear, you're not doing this in order to be saved. If you get water baptized, you're not doing it in order to be saved. We're going to see that instead these things represent spiritual truths that have already, already happened. Uh, things that we cannot see right now. Uh, we cannot see Jesus on the cross right now, but the elements, they remind us of this thing that happened. And knowing the, the deeper spiritual truths behind why was Jesus on the cross, what was he doing there? And water baptism, what that, what that symbolizes, what invisibly already happened to you at the moment that you believed. But we want to be really clear that salvation, according to Scripture, is by, it's by God's grace alone, so not by works, but it's received by faith alone, by, by trusting Jesus Christ. And it's a, it's a repentant faith. We turn from our rebellion to God, we turn to Jesus Christ and trust him, and salvation is received at that moment. There's going to be a process of growing in your Christian life, but you don't have to, to grow to some point, and then you're saved. It's the moment that you turn to Jesus Christ. And so this is something that's available to you now. And I pray that if you're here and uh, God convicts you of your sin, because we are sinners all, that there is a Savior waiting for you if you will turn to him and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So... <clears throat> We're going to talk about baptism first, and I will summarize it like this, that water baptism visually symbolizes the spiritual truth that each believer is united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That this is what water baptism represents. Now, water baptism, it is a visual representation of a, of a spiritual truth, of an invisible truth. And that's what some Christians mean by, by sacrament, by the way. So if they don't mean that it's, uh, God is automatically pumping grace to you, they just mean uh, that it's something that visually symbolizes a spiritual truth, then, okay, in that case, I'm okay with the word. Uh, I think it may be better to use ordinances just to avoid that confusion, uh, but it is something that represents a, a spiritual truth, but something that you can't see. You can't see the fact that there was a different type of baptism that took place the moment that you uh, trusted Christ as your Savior, that you were immersed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so there is a spiritual baptism that happens uh, the moment that you're saved, Spiritual, because the Holy Spirit is the one that does this and puts you, 1 Corinthians 12 says, into the body of Christ. But water baptism, what we do, it represents the spiritual truth that has already taken place. So water baptism represents dying and rising with Christ. That this is something that has already taken place. And this is why when we do baptism, uh, we put you into the water. The going down into the water represents dying with Jesus Christ. The coming out of the water represents being raised with him. A place in scripture that talks about this really clearly is in uh, Romans 6, 3 through 5. I'll read this for you. It says, Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So believers experience something that's called union with Christ. So at the moment of salvation, you are united with Christ in a way that what these things that happened and were true to Christ are, in God's eyes, true for you. So that if you are a believer, it is true that in one sense, you have already died. You have already died to your sin. And that's why Paul is saying in Romans here that you can't just go on living in sin. You, you, you died to that. You died with Christ. You don't remember actually dying, and it, it didn't hurt you, but you were spiritually joined to him, like spiritually duct taped to Jesus, so that when Jesus died and was buried, you died and were buried with him. That that counts for you as well, because you're united with him. And Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb. He was raised again. And so you're also raised to new life. And so you are already a new creation. God is still at work in you, but you're already at the core, a, a new creation. You have a, a born again, a new heart. And so we want to live out that new life. So that's what baptism represents. And that's going to play into why we do it the way that uh, we do baptism. But also just the word baptism itself literally means immersion. It means to immerse someone. It's a Greek word, baptizo, which you can hear that it sounds exactly like baptism. And so they really didn't translate this for us in Scripture. They just uh, took it and made it into an English word, uh, baptized. If they would actually translate it, you could translate it with the word immerse, because that's literally what it means. It means to, to submerge, to dip, uh, to bury Mounts, in his uh, work on languages, said it literally means, quote, to put or go underwater. And so it was a word that was used even of the, in the dyeing industry. Uh, dyeing in the sense of like you would dye a piece of cloth. You would take the piece of cloth, you would put it in the dye, it would become a different color, you, and you would take it out. And so that's what the word it literally means. So when we think of just kind of the mode of how to do this, uh, I believe that there's a lot of reason why it should be like, the way that we do it here. We immerse them. And I think that picture is dying with Christ, rising with Christ. Now, those that uh, do not hold this, because there's some churches that will, will sprinkle or some different things, um, they'll point to times where baptizo, they say, can also mean washing. And I would say, well, even then, you know, washing... Uh, oftentimes it's done by bathing something or by immersing it. And so, yeah, it is. You're, you're going to get a bath uh, if you get water baptized. Uh, so that is the, still the standard meaning means to immerse something. So, and we can see in Scripture just uh, different examples, uh, even Jesus' baptism uh, and others that uh, it was done um, you know, in the river, it was done in, in ways that uh, by immersion, whenever possible, they would do it that way in Scripture and in the early church. And, and I know we're going through this uh, kind of quick, but 
the Bible also presents a consistent pattern of believing first and then being baptized. That that is the pattern that you need to, to believe unto salvation. Okay, and when we're talking about believing here, we mean being saved. That you're, you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him for salvation, responding to the message of the word of God, and then being baptized. And this is the, uh, this is the consistent message that we do see in scripture. And so if this is something you're thinking through, I would just ask you to just look at Scripture and just notice this pattern over and over again. I'll give you three examples that are on the screen here. On your bulletin, on the backside, I have listed these as well as some others, and there are more, and you could take some time to look through that. You're going to see that it's, uh, there's a response of faith and believing, and then people are baptized. And these two go together, uh, but they go together in that order. So even in the, the Great Commission, and this is where we see Jesus uh, ordaining, ordering this for the church, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples, okay, so evangelizing people, telling them the good news about Jesus Christ, they respond to that, they become saved, they become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's why when we baptize people, I will say, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see the whole trinity there. Notice there's one name. It's not the names of the Father and the name of the Son. and the, It's the one name because there's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see the trinity there. And then the book of Acts, which documents the early church. This is a pattern that we see as well. Acts 2, 41 so those who received his word, okay, this is a reference to them hearing the word preached and believing it, responding in faith, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls that were added to the, to the church, to the body of Christ. Another example, Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It's uh, something that is, um, uh, sometimes people make parallels between this and circumcision in the Old Testament, but they're not exact parallels. Uh, circumcision in the Old Testament wasn't both men and women. And if you don't know why, then I'm not going to explain it to you uh, right here. Uh, but baptism is different. It's part of the new covenant. And in the new covenant we see from Scripture, it includes believers and just believers that are part of the new covenant. And therefore, baptism is something that is for believers. So the first step is to believe, to trust Christ as your Savior. It's not to get baptized first. Uh, but then uh, you ought to respond in uh, obedience and being baptized. And that is a, uh, both a testimony and a picture of what has already happened to you. It doesn't wash away your sins there, but it represents the washing away of your sins that, that happened the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior. Look quickly at two other passages uh, that I think actually teach this, but sometimes uh, those um, uh, friends of mine that maybe teach infant baptism will point to these passages, and I want to show you why I think they, they don't actually teach that at all. So one is Acts 16, and this is where in Philippi there's the jailer and uh, Paul and Silas are there, and God frees them. And it says, the jailer called for lights, 
uh, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole house. Now, I'm referencing this from the uh, uh, New International Version. Usually we do the New English Standard Version. I think the English Standard Version here is one that makes it a little bit more nebulous. Uh, but in pretty much every other translation, New American Standard, King James, uh, New King James, they all translate verse 34 in such a way that indicates that the entire household had already believed. And so those that hold to infant baptism will say, well, it says that his whole household was baptized and that may have included babies and therefore we uh, should baptize also babies or at least babies of believers. And I would say, really look at this. And it doesn't actually say anything about babies here. Uh, you have to kind of read that into that, uh, but it doesn't actually say. And instead, what I see is that as far as his whole household, that he proclaimed the word of the Lord to the whole household. That's what it says. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And uh, then at the end, also says that um, he had come to believe in God, he and his whole house. So the reason that he and his whole household were baptized is because they all heard the word of the Lord and, and believed. And so we don't see anything here that says that, uh, that there necessarily were infants. Um, but instead, it seems that they all had um, believed. You know, it's certain that if there were other adults that were part of the household or people that were of age enough to hear this and understand, that they wouldn't have been baptized if uh, they hadn't uh, personally believed. Uh, so it seems that everyone that heard this uh, believed. In addition, you know, Roman jailers tended to be retired Roman soldiers. And Philippi was a, a Roman colony, and this is how it would have been. And so, very likely, he would have been a, a man that was a bit older and wouldn't have necessarily had infants, and his children would have been older. Another one that's worth looking at, too, is Acts 2, 38-39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And those that, would, that hold to infant uh, baptism would say, see, it, it talks about this is for your children as well. I think, well, we've got to look at this more carefully. First of all, you see the order again, repent, uh, which repentance is the flip side of the same coin as faith. So you're not saved by two things, you know, repentance and faith, like they're two different things, uh, but it's like one coin with two sides. So faith in Jesus, genuine faith, is always repentant faith. You know, you experience sorrow for your sin. You realize that sinning against God is a bad thing. And uh, you want to do your best to turn away from that and, and be saved from this. Uh, so that's talking about the response of the salvation response. And then it says, and be baptized. 
Now, it's the trusting in Christ for your salvation that actually that he saves you. But notice it puts baptism as something that's kind of expected, that's connected to this. In Scripture, you don't see people that are, are saved and then just never get around to being baptized. But it says, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, he's commanding them to do this for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, what a great thing that I can tell you that forgiveness of your sins is available. I mean, just let that sink in. That's something we, we, we say, but uh, if this is the first time that you heard this, just take that in. What a glorious thing is that you can be forgiven of your sin no matter how bad it is because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He says you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That still happens today. Uh, it may not be manifested the same way, but the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in this age at the moment of salvation. And then he says, for the promises for you and for your children, but you've got to keep reading. It says also, for all, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it's not saying that, well, this is, you know, get baptized and also your kids. If you read this, we'd say, well, also your grandkids and your great-grandkids, uh, but we don't automatically baptize them. But the promise of salvation is available for you, and it's available for your kids, and it's going to be available for your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And it says, all that the Lord our God calls to himself. So I think this, still, this teaches, again, that order of that you need to respond in faith and then be baptized. So baptism also symbolizes incorporation into the church, the body of Christ. Uh, baptism, uh, I'll quote here the um, statement of faith for the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches that baptism is to be performed under the authority of the local church. So it's something that we do as the church and under the, the authority of the church. And now there might be exceptions where that happens. You have a missionary going somewhere um, and there just isn't a church yet. You know, or sometimes in um, you know, a scripture where um, you know, there just isn't a church. Uh, but even then, it's you know, done by somebody that is uh, you know, an apostle or another uh, person that is um, in authority over the church. And water baptism, it's an act of obedience for, for believers. And so an application of this is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you have never yet been baptized as a believer, this is something that you should seek. This is something that you should not put off. And whether you're worried about embarrassment or you're worried about the water or something, this is something that I want you to wrestle with and God calls you to do this. Not to be saved, but it is something that we to do as um, out of obedience. I want to say this as far as kids. Kids can be saved at a very young age. Okay, they, at a very young age, they can sometimes uh, understand the gospel enough uh, and people debate, like, when is an appropriate time for them to be baptized? Um, I think what typically is best is to wait till around high school because then they can make sure that they're doing it because they understand it, that it's not just doing it for mom and dad, but it's coming from, from them, and they can really own it for themselves. So baptism is one of the uh, two ordinances that we hold to and that we practice. And God willing, we'll be having some baptisms in the, the near future, uh, rejoicing with uh, some that have been saved. The other is the Lord's Supper. So at the Lord's Supper or communion, sometimes it's referred to that, and that's scriptural, that's okay. 
We remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out unto death for our salvation. Uh, Luke 22, 14 through 20, you could read that sometime, is in the Gospels where uh, Jesus um, has the Lord's Supper and tells the, uh, the apostles to, to do this and it gets passed down uh, to the church. But let's take some time and if you have scripture, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And this is really the key passage on the Lord's Supper. And we're going to read this, and at the same time, we're doing a sermon here, but we're also preparing our hearts to receive the Lord's uh, Supper communion this morning as well. So Paul here, he's writing to the church in Corinth that was not a healthy church. If you've read the, the book of uh, First or Second Corinthians, a lot of unhealthiness in the church, a lot of divisions, a lot of factions. Uh, and one thing that was unhealthy is that they were not doing the Lord's Supper in the right way. So Paul was writing to correct them. And uh, through that, he gives us instruction as well. Verse 17 says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, which, by the way, we see here that communion is done when they come together as a church, when it's the church gathered together. So don't hold that this is something that, that we do individually. This would not be something that I think you should be doing just at home over your table or as a family. This is something for the local church as the local church. Uh, the ordinances are to be done you know, as the local church. And that's why um, a few years ago we made the decision, and other churches did different things, and I don't want to judge, uh, but when we for a while couldn't meet together in person, we had to decide, are we going to try to do some kind of virtual communion or something? And we made the decision that, no, we don't want to do that. That communion is supposed to be something that when we gather together. So, so the first so we see it here a few times. This is done when the church is gathering together. He says, for the first place, when you are to come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. They weren't united. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry and another gets drunk? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is a time where scripture is still being written and you already have the early church going sideways already and taking the, the Lord's Supper and making it basically into a, uh, I don't, okay, into a potluck. Okay, I know we're in a Baptist church and say anything bad about potlucks here. Uh, but they turned the, the Lord's Supper into basically this potluck and people were bringing it, but they were bringing their own food. And the people that had plenty of money and plenty of food, they're getting there and they're gorging and uh, pigging out. And you have other people that don't have food and uh, you have the haves and the have-nots. And they're calling it communion. Paul's saying, what are you doing? This is not the Lord's Supper. This is not how it's supposed to work. 
You're taking something that's supposed to also help with unity and you're making it into something about divisions and selfishness. And then he gives the paragraph that uh, we read basically every time that we talk about the Lord's Supper and we take this. I'll read it to you now. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Again, this is from the Lord. That's why it's an ordinance. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he goes on. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, he doesn't say whoever drinks it unworthily in the sense of you better be a uh, perfect person in order to do this. No, we're, we're sinners. Um, and we're going to see you should examine yourself. If you're in, like, rebellion to God, uh, you need to get right with that right now. If you have, like, some kind of flagrant sin that you know of, you've got to repent of that. But what he's talking about here as well is that Doing it in an unworthy manner would be doing this in a way that's flippant, doing that's not treating it with the respect that it deserves. And that's also why um, we would ask you know, parents uh, for, you know, with your kids to make sure that they are old enough that, they, uh, really, that they're saved and that they really understand what this is about. And so even though they may be saved earlier, I usually would say hold off on that until they really understand this. Because uh, at first they're going to want to just, oh, there's juice being passed around. I want in on this. Uh, but that's not what it's about. It's not snack time. So we want to wait until they really understand the depths of what this, what this is. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. You know, are you genuinely a Christian? Are you doing this the right way? Do you understand what's going on? Is there something you need to repent of in your, in your life to get right with God? Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Not realizing this is about what Jesus Christ dying for us. And then he says, this, to see how serious this is, look at verse 30. That is why many of you were weak and ill and some have died. That Paul is saying that God had even disciplined them as a church and some had even uh, been sick or even died uh, because they've been profaning the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying every time that someone is uh, sick, that means you're in sin. I'm definitely not saying every time you, you die, it's because of some specific sin you did right then. But this is saying, at least at this case, uh, that God was disciplining them in this way. That's how serious this is to the Lord. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when, if they discipline themselves first. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but other things I will give direction when I come. So a few quick statements about this. 
The Lord's Supper is to be celebrated with the gathered local church. We already mentioned that, that we see this as something that we do together. Um, and also because we don't believe it's a sacrament that um, uh, dispenses grace to people. That's why also like, um, let's say in the Roman Catholic Church, you don't need a priest to, to bring it to you if you can't come. Uh, but it's something good to do if and when we can gather together. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how often we should do it. Uh, there's some churches that will do it every week, some that do it you know, once a quarter or a few times a year. We do it once a month. I kind of like that rhythm uh, because it, it's often enough, but it keeps it special. And we do it uh, every other month, either a.m. or p.m. So this is the month that we, we do it in the morning uh, here. But we do it when the church comes together as the, the gathered church. The bread and the cup do not change into something else. They are a symbolic memorial of Christ's body and blood. So over the uh, time in the Middle Ages, a doctrine called transubstantiation developed, where they believed and taught that the, the body and blood of Christ actually, or well, that the elements, excuse me, the, the bread and the, the cup, the, the wine that they used, actually became the body and blood of Christ that it changed substance. It looked the same on the surface, but the deeper the real substance of what it was uh, was changed. Uh, when the, the priest would say, hocus corpus meum, uh, this is my body, is when it, when it changed. Which, by the way, that's where the phrase hocus pocus actually comes from. Hocus corpus meum, because people thought, well, that sounds like a bunch of hocus pocus. I remember, I was raised Catholic. I remember I was an altar boy. And I remember one time that I, I got scolded after church uh, by a lady. I was serving as the altar boy, and you would come up and place this little, uh, look like a little wafer, look like a dried out oxy pad uh, on, your, on your tongue. And my job was to have this little golden plate that I would hold under their, their chin in case it dropped, you know, showing respect for it. And I was scolded by a lady that said, you know, when in between you were taking this and you were drooping it like that, and so any crumbs would be falling on the ground. And that's Jesus falling on the ground. And even as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, that doesn't sound right. Like, that's Jesus? Remember, when Jesus gave this, he, uh, he was actually there. When he said, this is my body, this is my, my blood, I think it was pretty obvious that it wasn't actually his body and blood, but this was something that he was giving to symbolize his body and to symbolize his blood. So it is something sacred. It's something holy, but it is uh, the elements do not actually change into something else. And also with this, uh, it is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. That's also a doctrine that developed in the Middle Ages too. And that's what they call it the Mass. Uh, we don't have a altar here. We have a communion table because uh, an altar is used for sacrifices and in Roman Catholic theology it's taught that this is a, a re-sacrifice of Christ every week it's uh, bloodless this time but it is uh, they teach it is an actual re-sacrifice of Christ and the reformers instead they looked at scripture places like um, the book of Hebrews and said no it teaches here pretty clearly the death of Christ was once and done, and it is not a repeated thing. So instead, we're remembering what he has done once and for all when he died for us. Let me just read to you from Hebrews 9, 25 through 28. I've, 
Just notice how many times this emphasizes once and done. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with, his, with blood not his own. So saying, you know, the high priest in the Old Testament, they had to do this over and over, but Jesus did it once. Quote, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christ came, he died once. When he died, right before he died, he said, it is finished, it's done. And when he died, that was all the sacrifice that was needed to take care of the sins of uh, as many people as would come to him in repentant faith, turning to him. It was once and done. And as we've seen, the Lord's Supper is for believers. And so when we gather together here, if you are a believer in Christ uh, and you understand this, you may partake. Uh, some churches you know, teach that you have to be a member of that church, and I, I get that. Uh, we just ask, you don't have to be a member of this church, but we do ask that you would solemnly examine yourself. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you really understand that? If you haven't, we please ask you to just let the elements pass by. And I pray that you would be using that time to, to turn to Christ in repentant faith. We'd love to talk to you about that afterwards as well, so you can know forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, we want to focus on the glorious truths that the ordinances point to. Christ sacrificed himself for our salvation, and we have been united to him in his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these ordinances, these word pictures, Lord, of what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for baptism and symbolizing being uh, immersed into the body of Christ, united with you, joined to you, and that it means that also believers have been united in your death and resurrection, that we've died to our sins because you have died in our place. And we've been raised to new life because you were raised in our place, Lord God. We thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for Lord's Supper, communion. And in this, we commune with you, we commune with one another, and we remember deeply what you have done for us, Lord God. Lord, as we prepare to take this together, Lord, uh, may we focus on you. May we be so grateful in our hearts for your body that was broken on our behalf what you suffered for us, Lord. You took our guilt, our condemnation. You took the punishment that we deserve. Your blood was shed out for the forgiveness of our sins and to institute the new covenant in which there is forgiveness of sins and in which you declare, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We give you praise. In Jesus, our Savior, in his name we pray. Amen.